If we all descended from Adam and Eve, how do you explain different skin colors and where Cain got his wife? And what about those really long lifespans? We'll answer those and some other common objections to biblical history today on Creation Magazine Live. Welcome to another audio podcast from your friends at CMI. Faith-building evidences for the accuracy of the Bible are coming right up. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. I'm Matt Bondi. And I'm Thomas Bailey. Today, objection overruled. In the next half hour, we're going to discuss a variety of questions, stumbling blocks, and in some cases, objections that many people have when they read Genesis. You can see a list here. We'll go through these, providing as much detail as the time allows. And we might as well mention this now. All of these questions and many more are answered in our Creation Answers book. And you can get your own copy at creation.com. Okay, the first one concerns how we all got here from only two people. The Bible says we all came from Adam and Eve about 6,000 years ago. Now, this most accurate historical record available to us describes where they came from with these words. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 4, their first son, Cain, kills his brother Abel and becomes a fugitive. In verses 16 and 17 read, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Okay, so if Adam and Eve had only two boys, who did Cain marry? His wife. (laughs) Okay, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, But this leads to a lot of questions. I mean, who was she? A sister? A niece? Where did she come from? Were there other women? Where did they come from? You know, if he married a close relative, there would have been birth defects, right? And Mm. and finally, Mm. God's law prohibits marrying close relatives. So what's the answer here? Well, the skeptics say the answer is that the Bible is wrong. (laughs) Now, the book and movie Contact feature an atheist heroine who says she lost her childhood faith because her pastor didn't have an answer to this question. And it's not just fictional characters. CMI speakers often hear sad testimonies of people who think the Bible is wrong in many areas. They don't get answers, and and then they reject Christ. Yeah, and we also get testimonies of people who did get answers and to their their objections, and they did turn to Christ. Amen. That's why we do this show. And this question is a big deal for some people. So Christians need to have an answer, or people will dismiss the Bible as either barbaric or untrue. Now, many people conclude that Cain went to Nod, uh, started dating uh, one of the local girls there, and he married her. Uh, But that only works if God created other people not related to Adam and Eve. Right. But the Bible doesn't say Cain got married in Nod. It says he settled there and knew his wife, who may have gone to Nod with him. That's a minor point. But on the other hand, there is a huge problem with the idea that there were people in Nod who did not come from Adam and Eve. Last episode, we explained how the Bible describes Jesus as humanity's kinsman redeemer. That means because his lineage goes back to Adam and Eve, he's related. He's the kinsman of everyone else who goes back to Adam and Eve. But the people in Nod and everyone else who's ever lived are descendants of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.20 confirms that. The man called his his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Okay, so Eve is everybody's great, 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 great grandmother, according to Scripture. <laughs> that might raise uh, even more questions until you put that verse together with Genesis 5-4, which tells us Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Now an answer begins to appear, right? Cain married a close relative. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, uh, think about this. 
all humans go back to Adam and Eve. So all humans are related. Mm. This is not just the view of creationists. So for, for those of you who are, are married, you know, you married one of your relatives. <laughs> okay, enough pause. Take a deep breath. Don't panic. Yeah, if you didn't marry one of your relatives, you married something that isn't human. <laughs> right. Okay, now you can panic. <laughs> you were related to your spouse before you got married because all humans are related, even if we're 109th cousins 11 <laughs> times removed. Yeah, good point, cuz. <laughs> okay, what about genetic defects? You know, in episode six, we explained how all of our traits are coded in stretches of DNA, our genes. Uh, we inherit two copies of these, one from each parent. Now, as cells divide and DNA is copied, mutations happen and genes get messed up. Uh, if you inherit a normal gene from each parent, everything's hunky-dory, no defects. Hunky-dory? Yeah, hunky-dory. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean. Uh, but if you inherit a good copy from one parent and a defective one from another, um, it's still okay because the good one acts as sort of a backup, you know? Still hunky-dory. Yeah, all right, still hunky-dory. But if you get a bad copy from each parent, then defects happen. Now, this is less likely if parents are not closely related, but can still happen. But if your parents are closely related, such as, you know, brother and sister, there's a much greater chance of defects because they've inherited similar DNA, including mutations, from their parents. Uh, as, as mutations accumulate over time, defects become more likely. So there were fewer mutations in the past. Yep. Meaning Adam and Eve had... They had none because God pronounced his creation very good. Mutations started after the fall. So Cain would have had... Yeah, so Cain would have had very few. Out of uh, three billion base pairs of letters in our DNA, it would take a long time to accumulate enough mutations mm. for there to be any real danger. I mean, God didn't actually prohibit marrying a close relative until the time of Moses, about 2,500 years after creation. Wow. Now, at this point, some people think God changed his standards. Uh, no. <laughs> he knew humanity would have to build up from just one couple and then start over after uh, Noah's flood. He also mm -hmm. knew mutations wouldn't be an issue for centuries. Right. You know, God's laws are very practical. For example, think of a newborn baby. We don't need very many rules for newborns because they can't do much. But for toddlers, we put up barriers everywhere and make new rules like thou shalt not climb the bookcase. So over time, more rules become necessary for the child's protection. Yes, and in the same way, a law against marrying a close relative wasn't needed until Moses' time. God didn't change his mind. He just updated his covenant as needed. God's pretty smart. Have you ever heard someone say, how can a good God create a world with so much suffering and death? Well, for example, former evangelist Charles Templeton wrote, why does God's grand design require creatures with teeth designed to crush spines or rend flesh, claws fashioned to seize and tear, venom to paralyze, mouths to suck blood, coils to constrict and smother, even expandable jaws so that prey may be swallowed whole and alive? Mm. Well, this and his acceptance of evolution led Templeton to abandon his faith, as it has for many others. It's a common objection, so let's talk about the solution. Now, he's forgetting the effects of the fall. Death and predation are results of a sin-cursed world, right. not God's original creation that he called very good. In episode two, we showed that before sin, there was no meat-eating or death for creatures called nefeshkaya, meaning living being or living soul. Now, this refers to the breath of life and blood, so it wouldn't include plants, which God encouraged Adam and Eve to eat. Man wasn't allowed to eat meat until after Noah's flood, and animal carnivory likely started after the fall. 
So why do so many creatures even have things like poison fangs, claws, and teeth? Now, Scripture doesn't specify all the details, uh, but it does allow for some possibilities. One is that defense attack structures may have had a different purpose before the fall. Then, after Adam sinned, mutations changed that purpose. For example, we often associate sharp teeth with, with uh, eating meat. Uh, we need to be careful there because fruit bats also have sharp teeth, uh, but they eat fruit, not steak. Right. Giant pandas have sharp teeth and claws, but eat mostly bamboo. Great. A few years ago, we ran a story in Creation Magazine about Little Tyke, a female lion who just wouldn't eat meat. <laughs> okay, that's weird. I wonder if all the other lions used to laugh and call her names. <laughs> they probably wouldn't let her join in any lion games. Yeah. So all creatures ate plants before the fall in uh, the very good world. And as we explained last week, there'll be a return to that uh, non-meat-eating world in the future. Mutations are one possibility, and they can explain some of the changes, but they don't fully explain the incredible design involved in some defense and attack structures, uh, not only in each creature, but in a delicately balanced ecosystem. Uh, like lions, uh, they not only have sharp teeth and claws, but also finely tuned hunting instincts. Mm, point. But in his foreknowledge, God may have designed these features with a dual purpose from the start. Or maybe these structures were in masked form originally, meant to show up only after Adam sinned, also consistent with God's foreknowledge. Yeah, another possibility within a biblical framework is that they were redesigned after the fall. Hmm. In Genesis 3, thorns first came into being and the serpent lost its legs. Right. What we do know is that the bloodshed and death skeptics try to blame God for is actually the result of sin or rebellion against God. And the restoration is a coming. Amen. So there are possibilities there. It's not an insurmountable challenge to Scripture. Okay, now for something completely different. If there was a global flood, where are all the human fossils? Remember, not everything that lives and dies becomes a fossil. There are hundreds of living fossils like coelacanth, tuatara lizards, and the, the wallamai pine, all thought to have gone extinct millions of years ago because there are no fossils of them in supposedly more recent rocks. But they're still alive and unchanged. In a global flood, we'd expect to see a general but somewhat jumbled burial order, and we do. 95% of the fossils, uh, the fossil record is bottom-dwelling sea creatures like shellfish. And 4.75% is plant matter, uh, things that couldn't escape the sediment-filled floodwaters. Right. Only one quarter of 1% are vertebrates like fish, reptiles, and mammals. Uh, these creatures could avoid the floodwaters longer depending on their mobility. And what do you think would, uh, or who do you think, would survive the longest? We would. Yes, of course. <laughs> People likely hung on to logs and anything floating until they drowned. So right. very few, if any, were fossilized. Human fossils we do find are most likely post-flood. But even if there were 10 million people at the time, all preserved and spread out through 700 million cubic kilometers of fossil-bearing rock, there'd only be one in every 70 cubic kilometers of rock. Okay, so there are some things to think about regarding the extreme rarity of human fossils. How did early generations live so long? But first, something more recent. In the 1960s, a middle-aged lawyer made a deal with a client named Jeanne Calment, who was in her 90s. Now, he would pay her a generous monthly stipend in exchange for taking ownership of her apartment, and she could live there rent-free for the rest of her life. Wow, sounds like a great deal. 
Exactly. She'd get free rent and a nice income, and he'd get an apartment for cheap since she was already over 90. What he didn't know was Jeanne Calment would become the longest living person in modern history. She died in 1997 at the age of 122 years and 164 days. That lawyer died of old age long before she did, and he and his estate paid for the apartment many times over. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Well, 122 years is really old to us today, and that causes people to question the long lifespans of people like Adam and Methuselah, yeah, who the sure. Bible says lived for hundreds of years. So how did people before the flood live way longer than people after the flood? A while ago, some Bible-believing uh, scientists explored something called the canopy theory. Genesis 1-7 reads, And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. So it was suggested there had been a water canopy above the Earth's atmosphere, and that this canopy collapsed, causing 40 days and 40 nights of rain in Noah's flood. It was also suggested the canopy would have caused a worldwide greenhouse effect, with warm climate, lots of vegetation, and longer lifespans. Without the canopy, lifespans got much shorter after the flood. Now, keep in mind, scientific uh, models come and go as far as, you know, ideas are proposed, tested, and new discoveries are made. Uh, now, at CMI, we say hold to models lightly, but hold to Scripture tightly. That's right. You know, further research actually showed mm. such a canopy couldn't be more than two meters thick without basically cooking the earth. Mm. Uh, and that wouldn't hold near enough water for 40 days and 40 nights of rain. So there's science against the vapor can canopy model. And there's Scripture against it as well. Psalm 148 verse 4 says, Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens, indicating those waters were still in existence after the flood. Now, currently, most creation scientists favor flood models that don't involve a water canopy, such as catastrophic plate tectonics, which we talked about in episode 3. Right, so long lifespans were not likely because of a favorable environment before the flood. But there was still a change in lifespans associated with the flood as this graph shows, Noah lived for another 350 years after the flood, dying at uh, 950 years. Shem lived to be only 600 years. Only? <laughs> yeah, poor Shem. <laughs> His son, Arphaxad, lived to be 438. Uh, Peleg, 239. Abraham, 175, and so on. So what happened here? Again, we can look to genetics. As mutations accumulate, biological systems deteriorate the population becomes less fit, less robust, less able to cope with diseases which affect lifespans. In his book, Genetic Entropy, Dr. John Sanford included a graph that he'd made using a computer program called Mendel's Accountant. He input an estimated number of mutations per generation in a population over the course of about 200 generations, and there's been about that many generations since the flood. The sloping red line represents the decline in overall fitness. Looks a lot like the other graph, doesn't it? It suggests mutations could be the culprit behind the drop in lifespans, or a leading factor anyway. Now, we do know mutations cause everything in our bodies to wear out over time. Some of us know that better than others. <laughs> uh, speak for yourself, Grandpa. <laughs> okay, another contributing factor to shrinking lifespans, and this involves uh, genetics again, has to do with the cap on the ends of our chromosomes called telomere. It determines how many times a cell can divide before it dies. We could all live much longer if we had longer telomeres, and that may be the answer to why pre-flood generations did, and then this got lost in the genetic bottleneck 
of the flood where the entire human population was reduced to eight. Now, this is consistent with biblical history that says everything in creation has been going downhill since the fall. Right. But evolution says we should be getting better and better. Okay, so how are you doing so far? Well, we've covered a lot of topics very quickly, but there's lots more information in the Creation Answers book that you can get at creation.com. Okay, next up, what about the Nephilim? This is a highly debated question, even in the church. We'll do a brief overview today, but we did an entire episode in Season 7 titled, Who Were the Nephilim? The word Nephilim appears only twice in Scripture. Genesis 6-4 reads, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The term seems to mean offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of man. While CMI doesn't have an official position on this, there are four major views of who the sons of God were. One is fallen angels. God judged man's wickedness with a global flood, and some commentators say this included wiping out the evil influence of the Nephilim. This fits with the fallen angels idea, as though Satan had tried to corrupt mankind and prevent the Messiah from being born. Scripture describes angels as bene Elohim, or sons of God, because he directly created them. Adam is called the son of God for the same reason, and Christians are called sons of God because they're new creations in Christ. Now, the term for daughters of man is benot Adam. But if the sons of God were humans, it should be bene Adam. Now, some say angels can't have children because in Mark 12, 25, Jesus said, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But he doesn't say the angels can't procreate, just that the obedient ones in heaven don't. Right. Angels in human form sometimes ate and drank, with Abraham, for example. If they could eat, they may have had the necessary parts for procreation as well. Okay, the second view is the sons of God were a godly line descending from Seth, who married the daughters of man, descended from Cain. But then, why doesn't the text specify sons of Seth and daughters of Cain? What about daughters of Seth and sons of Cain? Even assuming Seth was godly, it doesn't mean all of his descendants were. Apparently not, because most of them died in Noah's flood. <laughs> A third view is they were powerful kings. Historically, some kings have referred to themselves as gods, but there's not much scriptural support for this interpretation. And the fourth view is they were fallen angels or demons who inhabited the bodies of men. That is something found in scripture, uh, but... Why would the children of demon-possessed people be singled out as fallen? You see, Nephilim is often translated as giants, but it's more accurately rendered fallen ones from the Hebrew root word nafal, meaning to fall or to be cast down. Some suggest the Nephilim were condemned because they were not fully human, going back to the fallen angel idea. Now, the other reference is in Numbers 13.33, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. This is part of a bad report given by ten of the spies who had gone into Canaan. They were clearly afraid and seemed to have exaggerated the dangers. Yes, there were giants after Noah's flood like Goliath, uh, but giants are not. The Nephilim were wiped out in the flood. Now, there's a quick summary. Again, for more information, you can get a copy of the Creation Answers book. Are you hanging in there? We've got just one more big question to cover. Where did all the races come from? 
But first, what is a race? Well, according to dictionary.com, it's a contest of speed as in driving, running, riding, or sailing. Okay, not those kind of races. <laughs> race is a word often used to designate different people groups according to physical distinctions like skin color. But biblically, there's only one race, the human race. Right, cuz? All right, Acts uh, 17, 26 affirms this. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. So from Adam came all the people everywhere, one race. We now know there's only 0.2% difference in the DNA of any two people in the world. Wow. And only 6% of that 0.2% is linked to so-called racial differences like skin color, confirming we're all one human family, just like the scripture says. Science supports scripture again. You know, since we're all one race, let's redefine the question. How did differences like skin color between people arise? Okay. We've often shown this example of twins born in 2005. Now, you can see mom and dad have mid-brown skin. But look at the girls. How is that possible? Well, it has to do with a pigment called melanin. Uh, lots of melanin means darker skin, less melanin, lighter skin. And how much you produce is coded in your DNA. Melanin protects our skin from harmful ultraviolet light from the sun, so it's good to have a lot where there's lots of sunlight. <laughs> That's why some of us need the SPF 500 sunscreen while others don't. Well, melanin also makes it harder to absorb uh, vitamin D from the sun, so having less is helpful where there's less sunlight. Skin color is governed by more than one pair of genes, but let's suppose there's only two. One form of the gene, capital M, says make lots of melanin. Another form, small m, says make a little bit. Already, possibilities range from very light to very dark, depending on what's inherited in your DNA. Now consider parents who each have uh, four possible combinations available to pass on. This graph shows 16 possible skin tones in just one generation, oh. which easily explains those twins. Adam and Eve likely had at least this many variations available in their DNA. And probably Noah's family as well. Right. Noah's descendants all stayed in the same area around the Tower of Babel refusing to fill the earth as God had commanded. The confusion of languages and the dispersion of people from Babel is a key to understanding the distribution of skin shades globally. God confused their language, dispersing them into smaller groups, still with mostly middle brown skin, who migrated away from Babel, encountering new environments. Now consider a group of people who moved to a region with little sunlight. Here, the darker skinned folk in that group would not be able to produce enough vitamin D and so they'd be less healthy and have fewer children. So in time, the light-skinned members would be more healthy and, and they would come to be predominant. Now, several different groups went to such an area, and if one group happened to be carrying few genes for lightness, this particular group could die out over time. Mm. Uh, by the way, it's natural selection acting on the characteristics already present. It doesn't create new ones. Right. On the other hand, fair-skinned people in sunny regions could suffer from skin ulcers, skin cancer, and folate deficiency. So in these regions, dark-skinned people would be more likely to survive, and, and they would come to be predominant. Scientifically-minded Christians have a great explanation for the distribution of skin shades around the world right. that's consistent with the biblical record of the ancient world. Okay, we've sped through several common questions about Genesis. Most of what we've summarized, and a whole lot more that we didn't cover, is explained in greater detail in the, the Creation, Creation Answers, Answers book. book.
This is a must-read book for parents to equip you to deal with some of the common questions about the Bible. It will help you to uh, build your kids' faith and yours, too. Yeah, you can order the Creation Answers book at creation.com. And while you're there, use our search engine to explore thousands of articles. Right. Creation Magazine is our flagship publication, and we highly recommend that, that you get hold of that. You can get a uh, free sample copy by going to creation.com slash freemag. Yes, and did I mention you can get our Creation Answers book at creation.com? No, I don't think you did. You should probably mention it one more time. Okay, well, you can get our Creation Answers book at creation.com. <laughs> See you next week, and remember, Christianity is an evidence-based faith. And science supports Scripture. Creation Magazine Live is a production of Creation Ministries International, the publisher of Creation Magazine and the minds behind creation.com. If you want to chip in to support our ministry, go to creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.